Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. It's another fine Saturday morning. It is another fine Saturday morning. I heard you you did a little rah-rah at work trying to get people to listen to us. A little bit. And just like you mentioned when we were on with Spencer, that you haven't even told your family. And I've told like five people about this podcast. I haven't been announcing it to anybody either. It came out in conversation. Like it was, it was just... I don't know how it did, but it was very natural. It came out in conversation with a couple of colleagues of mine, and they got really interested. Oh wow! And they wanted to li- they got they wanted to listen to it. At least one of them has listened to the podcast because when I was in the office on Wednesday, he commented how how much he likes it and enjoys the back and forth we have. Nice, specifically. So yeah, that's fun. I've, uh, we passed. Go for it. We passed 200 listens, which is we did. You know, my, we did. Somebody might laugh at us for that, but for just being being as new as we are, like as the podcast. I mean, I'm I'm happy with that. We did pass 200 listens. I've uh, slowly been mentioning it in passing to friends. Yeah, I still don't really heavily advertise anything because I want our catalog to be better, bigger, and I am the reason that we side quest 10. Of our, this is episode 18, 19, 19. This is uh, episode 19. Currently, half of our podcast is The Way of Kings, which is not a bad thing in my opinion, but uh, five of them are short stories, 10 of them are The Way of Kings, and that leaves four of them at this point to be two other books. So I'm waiting to talk more about it with folks just because there's more to come with the options and spencer i will have you know has been texting me about a bunch of other books that i have recommended that he's going through right now like he just went through the cradle series well the cradle book one which is this dragon ball z style book basically it's dragon ball z in a book form basically he was super surprised at how much he liked it by the end of the first book He'll probably be coming back for additional books besides uh, the Cosmere. And he's also reading The Lies of Locke Lamora right now. And he's like, yeah, I'm having trouble getting into it. And I was like, well, how far are you? And he's like, chapter three. And I was like, okay, get out of here. Like, that's world building still. You're reading a new series and you're three chapters in. Of course it's still world building. Yeah, yeah, there's time. But books, I described book two and three of The Lies of Locke Lamora as... I'll just describe book three because I I think that one's more interesting at the moment. Book three is basically Ocean's Eleven meets Pirates of the Caribbean. You mentioned that to me. That's the same uh, same example you used a while back. I don't think it's it's on any of our episode on any of our yeah. episodes, but yeah, I started Lies of Locke Lamora and uh, it's, I'm I'm having a hard time getting into it. But are you three chapters in, it, like Spencer? I, I am about <laughs> a chapter in. I'm I'm on like page four. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, it's not Scott Lynch is not the same style of writing a Sanderson, it's very different. I assure you that this is a series worth trudging through the intro because you don't know the character yet. You don't know the world. 
you don't know what's going on. And so you're kind of in this intro stage of like, who is Locke? Why is he an orphan? Blah, 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 blah. And figuring those things out. But halfway, not halfway, it's probably like, I don't know, chapter 12 or something like that, where the story picks up and you start to get more of his back fla- uh, flashbacks and things like that. And then by the end of book one, you have an established character, which makes book two and book three. Oh, man. Book three lands on a cliffhanger, and then Scott had some mental health issues, so he stopped writing, even though this is supposed to be a seven-book series. And he's trying to drop a novella right now. Well, right now is relative, but there's rumor that he's trying to drop a novella that happens between the books. But the character of Locke is really interesting as you continue to dive into it. All that to say, keep reading it. I promise you it's good. And frankly, we should we should discuss it on here because it's it's a good book. Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. And I think based on how you described it, I think it's going to be a fine read. But I understand Spencer's uh, predicament. That's too strong a word for this. But I understand his qualms. hesitation. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I understand his hesitation with it because I'm probably on, on page 30. That might be chapter two. I don't know. I listened sure. to it. I listened to it as I was taking the shower because I'm using the audiobook, but I was engaged enough. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like the shower didn't, didn't take my attention away from the noise coming out of the speaker. And I was I was with it, but I was kind of like, ugh, this is kind of, I don't know if I like it. Father Chains. But I'm going to stick with it. Jean. Locke. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry? I'm just listing off people from the, from the book that you probably haven't met yet. No. That are main players. They're main players that you meet in, I don't know, six chapters or something like that. Jean Tannen, Father Chains. Father Chains. It's a nice name. I like that. I have quotes. We're just going to do a quick a quick nonsense side quest that has no relevance for anybody who hasn't read this read this book, but or is it all connected to do androids dream of electric sheep, but It's quotes. You this know, is what and, it's all about. And interestingly enough, I haven't been doing what I normally do, which is every year I've been doing this since 2020. It's called the Spark Note where you have this note that you just jot all of your ideas in. So like quips and one-liners or books that I've read or thoughts that I've had or thoughts I want to come back to, whatever. But anyway, Mm -hmm. so there's quotes from Father Chains in some of this and Jean from the, well, not the Lies of Locke Lamora, but like the Lamora series. And the first one is, nobody wins all the time, Locke, from Father Chains which is fun. And then this is from book three, but it's uh, it's one of my favorite lines because sometimes life is hard. And this is from Jean. It's, To hell with you, Locke. I didn't save your God's damned life for you so you could sulk in this goddamn hovel and pretend that you're the only man who's ever invented grief. You're not that God's damn special. It's great. I-, I love it. Yeah. There's just a lot of... It's very real. The relationship between these two men is very real authentic too because they're both being themselves but they're also both the robin hoods of the world to put it very kindly very kindly okay where they're they're thieves they're thieves so it's fun anyway you had an original question somewhere that i don't think i answered oh telling people about the podcast and then i mentioned oh, yeah, spencer yeah, yeah. reading so extra the books. one guy that uh uh, one guy from work that is listening, because he said he's listened to a few, and he's enjoyed the progression of how even in the first few episodes, our back and forth noticeably better than the very first. And he's mentioned the way of kinks. He's like, and now I'm, I'm now I'm on the fantasy thing you guys are talking about. 
So he's going through the episodes, which, you know, good for him. I'm, Love I'm happy it. that he's doing that. And he's he's a cool dude. So I would be I'd be interested to hear his feedback. I'll probably ask for it in a couple of weeks. Feedback, like, hey, and then by the also, way. like, if he's reading The Way of Kings, like, ask him what his first read-throughs are. Yeah, I don't think he is, but oh, okay. if he right. ends up doing it because of it, that'd be interesting. Is this your friend? But from- I'm going to give it a couple of weeks. Mm? No, go for it. I'm going to give him a couple of weeks, and then I'm going to say, hey, so you've listened to at least now, what, 10 episodes, even if it's just still the, sure. the original six. Any feedback as a listener for us? Yeah, yeah, always good. That's a note for you guys as well. If you have feedback to go, hey... What are you doing here? Why does the audio cut out? Blah blah blah. Just ask us. We don't. We can't catch everything. So please, we're happy to take feedback. Happy to take feedback. Yeah. Is this a guy from Absolutely. work who's also a French chef? Your friend who cooks? no no okay uh, no, but he's from the same group. So same group. I th- this is a different a different division. A pod or company. whatever. You guys have pods or something. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So he's from a different division. Um, they do the same stuff. Only they're more um, in the weeds with the data. But it, oh, it's, okay. it's the same marketing data analytics or data science. Probably analytics. a little bit of both. Really, a okay. little bit of both. A little bit of both. So two of them. There's six of them over there. Two of them are chefs. This guy is just a two of them are chefs. Dude. I only know about one. Or maybe I've assumed that the times you talk about it, it's always the same person. Whatever. Well, one of them is the guy that suggested the Escoffet book mm-hmm. that's already been mentioned in the podcast. And again, if you guys want to learn what we understand as French cooking. Or fine dining, like the structure for it, for lack of a better term. It's a book called Escafet. It'll probably be about 50 bucks. It's a tome. And in any reputable culinary school, you will learn this book. You will, according to this guy, he had to memorize the first 150 pages of it. And how to sear meat, how to make a sauce, how to cook a chicken, all of it uh, is in this book. So he, one of them suggested that book, which I've been going through and playing around with and the other guy is just you know he's he was there were partners in a in a restaurant endeavor i just talked to him more so that i reference him a little bit more than i do the other guy but he was the first guy that uh suggested the book nice interesting how are your cooking endeavors these days slava they're good i haven't been on top of things as much as i want to be the last couple of weeks because of schedule and work and work schedule life and all that stuff but i've been trying different kind of sears different kind of meats like some of the basics uh, how do you sear a piece of meat uh, how do you cook it so it tastes good not like a piece of rubber <laughs> something that gordon ramsay always says no color no flavor so how do you get that uh, first sear done well so it's not sticking to the pan so it's not burning and how do you cook a piece of meat and i've learned to really like rare medium rare meat yeah i love medium rare uh, I was always a medium to a medium well kind of guy, but I've been trying different types of uh, temperatures of meat, too, for different types of meat. Like, a rare lamb is pretty damn good. The lamb I made for Easter was rare, medium rare, but more rare and, uh, on the the fatter portion of it. It was definitely rare, and I loved it. So stuff like that I've been doing, and Easter gave me the chance to get back on it, but Unfortunately, I, I haven't been cooking up a lamb on, uh, at the end of Passover, in, in the middle of Passover. How dare you? Cultural, cultural faux pas. Yeah, I am full of those. And I'm the, I'm the type of dude that will eat lamb and rice on Passover because... <laughs> because it's delicious. That's why. Because it's delicious. And I don't think... I haven't bought into the Ashkenazi kind of interpretation of 
what's appropriate to eat on Passover or not. I'm like, I always thought that was. I'll eat lamb. Like, okay, dietary yeah. kosher laws, cool, fine with that, right? Like, that makes sense because it's you know a law given by God. But the the traditional stuff, and this gets to your Devani quote that you gave us a couple episodes of ago, where it's like tradition can be questioned, and that's okay because frankly. If you have a family, like you should be building your own traditions because it means something to you. And it means that you you can question traditions you were raised with if they didn't serve you. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Debating is okay. Even debating doctrine is okay. Like that's what that's what it's all about. Like in the intro, you say that's how conversations go. Yeah. Well, that's how life goes. I believe a lot of things very stringently, but I'm willing to debate them. Well, you're a man of conviction, right? And and that's part of Part of the, it's one of the strings that that our friendship rolls on, and frankly, like the group that we great grew up with, like we were all people of conviction, and like that was one of the things where we would toss back and forth like these ideas, and like is that a good thing or bad thing? Like people would, I don't know if you remember this, but sometimes we'd bring outsiders into our hangouts, and they'd be like, "Why are you guys it's mad? At, yeah, why are you guys, guys mad at each other?" And it's just like we're not. We're enjoying ourselves. What are you? What are you doing? You know, you get two yeah. juice together. They have thirteen opinions. So, right. You get six and juice think, together, and you, man, you got an encyclopedia. Right. So the interesting thing is, I think like you and me specifically, in that 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 friend group, at least you and me, not true for the, the whole friend group, but we have a maybe a more eastern way of interacting. Which I, I mean, there's cooperative yeah. overlapping in conversation. Like, there's people shouting and arguing. None of it's done with any malice, or right? No, it's just, yeah. we're just passionate about talking. And sometimes when I get animated about things I'm even disagreeing with, but I'm disagreeing about them in a very um, very friendly way. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually agnostic to a d- d- point, and as I'm getting to the point of that agnosticism, I have some opinions, and I'll get animated about those opinions, but at the end, when I get to the conclusion, I'm like, but... I really don't know, or I really don't care. But even getting to the point where my listener is going about is about to hear me say, "Ah, I'm agnostic. I'm animated about everything else." <laughs> and they're like, "They're like, dude, Slava, come down. It's okay. This is not a big deal." I'm like, "No, I know it's not a big deal. I'm just freaking animated. Leave me alone." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not always the like the, the podcast. Like when I started, I know if I go back and listen to the first three episodes, I'll sound more mechanical, more academic. And we talked about that. This is something I have to just break myself because every time I've done public speaking before this podcast has always been in a more academic didactic kind of setting where I'm teaching something or right. <laughs> I am uh, talking to a group of people explaining something which is I guess the same freaking thing to, at the end of the day here it's a more free free flowing conversation and you know me like I can talk for hours about stuff and not about nothing dry. you can talk for hours about nothing because you talk to me for about an hour about nothing. Absolutely. And that'd be dry and, you know, mechanical. So I just have to kitchen table Slava with a glass of wine and get that Slava to be in front of this microphone. And I think I'm getting better than that. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Yeah. Anywho, that was a fun. Anywho. Uh, it was a fun intro. How about we discuss androids dreaming of electric sheep? Let's do it. So in the last episode... I mentioned that I wanted to talk about the world, which I think we, it was a missed opportunity for the introduction of the first episode. So we're going to kind of... Swing ar- swing around. Yeah. And uh, I want to talk about the world and then switch over to taking chapters a little bit by chunks and really pick up the conversation that we left off in the previous episode 
about empathy. Like, what does it mean to be human? Because again, Dick, he's talk, he's come from his perspective, from his worldview. We're all living in a simulation. And I don't know how much that had an effect on writing this book, maybe a little bit, but author, authorial intent, author's intent, it, it matters. So, and I think we mentioned this before we started recording, maybe we'll get into the philosophy of the book in a bonus episode. I think we really should. But for right now, for the purpose of this episode, talk about the world and kind of take chunks of the chapters and do a little bit deeper dive into these chunks using the the setup we started in um, part one, where empathy, entropy, and the need for human connections. All right, so getting into it, what did you think about the world? Because it's catastrophic, it's barely inhabitable, all the all the animal life has been eradicated, or at least most of the animal life has been eradicated. Humans are leaving for Mars. That's kind of maybe a secondary, even tertiary part of the question or part of the, the issue. But the world itself, because it's kind of futuristic. You have these empathy boxes that do their own thing with, for, the, you know, for the religion. You have flying cars. You have laser guns. And then you have this world that's falling apart. And I know there's not a lot of details. Like, it doesn't describe the world in great detail, but then the, the cities are congested, parts of the the wild, as it, you know, maybe for lack of a better term, that's kind of also falling apart. It's hard to be there. It's hard to, sur- hard to survive. Great question. Yeah. What'd you think of the world? The world felt a little bit like Fallout meets the Jetsons. Ooh. Now that's nice. I like it. Yeah, because... Fallout is this dystopian nuclear wasteland that has rubble and kibble just everywhere, and there's very few inhabitable places, and there's androids and robots and, and machines around that have become, well, or are sentient, are sentient. And then you've got the Jetsons with flying cars and laser beams and, and whatever, so it, it struck me as kind of a, a mixture of these two things. Not in a bad way necessarily, but in a curious way, because it seems peculiar to me that such an advanced level of humans that can make flying cars and laser beams would be able to at least create some sort of self-preservation in bubble cities, if I can call it that, where there's like a globe or a greenhouse, like a terrarium. There's actually something... There's like a term for this that I can't remember, where you, uh, an ecosystem, a, self, a self-sustaining self ecosystem that is this globe that you live in, and we've seen it also in, what was that video game, Bioshock, in the ocean. It's these right. globes that you live in, and yeah, you travel between entities, uh, or globe cities, or whatever, and you, you go back and forth, but in the interim, you, like, you travel through the wasteland. And you live inside these things, almost like submarines or, or self-enclosed cities. So I liked it. I thought it was interesting. I suspended my level of belief to try to make sure that there was no accidental breaking of the world. Because if you think too hard about most things, you can probably find a way to break the world. And I don't want to do that. I want to enjoy the book. I want to enjoy the, the characters and, and what's going on. So... That was kind of fun, but yeah, I, I thought it was good. I, I thought it's an interesting mix, right? Right. Both advanced and decaying. 
I think that's a very, uh, very appropriate analogy. You said I really liked it. Fallout meets Jetsons. And that, that covers it really well. What I like about Philip K. Dick's writing is the way he pulls you into the world without even giving you too much details about the world itself. How he builds it, it's very, I think, subtle. And that's what I enjoy about Dick's writing. I'm kind of pulled into these worlds, whether I read The Scanner Darkly, I'm pulled into like the character's world. And even though I don't know a lot about it, maybe necessarily how the, how the flying cars work or who invented the, the ray gun or how the empathy machine actually uh, works. I don't know these things, but I'm pulled in, and I kind of get a sense where it's a little familiar, but it's not, and I am hooked. And that I enjoyed about the world itself, and it's kind of like a, an answer within an answer, I suppose. So I enjoyed the way I was pulled into it. Sanderson, for example, I really liked the pace of his writing. Am I overly concerned how the high storms work? and where they come from, to the degree that it tells the story, and I find out more about Desolations and Odium and the rest of the crew. But other than that, I'm fine not knowing. Here, I'm also fine not knowing about why the cars are flying, but people can't figure out how to preserve themselves in this world. But it's just the sense of um, connection, I guess you could say, like how I'm pulled into it, the world, the way he describes the world helps me put myself into the shoes of these characters. And this goes back to what I said in the previous episode where I don't have to believe what Philip K. Dick believes. I'm sure if we put our, you know, laid out our philosophies and our worldviews, we might agree on maybe 20%. Not at all does that turn me off from going into this world and accepting for what it is. And that's where I was pulled in, where you get a sense of, this is very, very the laborious, almost, for lack of a better term, life these people have. Everything is just so drab. Everything's falling apart. And without getting a lot of description of the buildings or the environment or how cars work or how guns work, you got immersed into this world. I got immersed into this world, and I kind of felt... Like, wow, this is very heavy. This is drab. This is a dark world that's not easy to live in because everything is falling apart, including the environment. Does that make sense? It does. That's what I got from it. It does. And you said it yourself. Dick and Sanderson's writing, they're they're kind of night and day because Sanderson does a lot more world building than Dick does, but that doesn't discount the world that Dick built. It's simply that Dick throws you into the mix and says, figure out what's going on from the start. Right. The world is just a mantelpiece for you to enjoy as part of the plot. And he doesn't really require you to understand the world building because he's not building a world. He's telling a story. And the world is simply a conduit to tell the story rather than, and this is where the difference comes in, Sanderson is a world builder. Rothfuss is a world builder. Scott Lynch is a world builder. Will White is a world builder. There's these authors who are world builders, and then there are the authors who are just trying to tell a story. And I don't want to miscommunicate here about just trying to tell a story. It's like telling a story is really hard. Telling a good, engaging, thought-provoking, entertaining, thought-provoking or entertaining, both is even harder, character-driven where the characters are interesting, like telling a story is hard. So it's not just telling a story. 
So, so don't mishear me, but definitely telling a story is difficult. How many people do you know in your life who ramble on about facts and they don't tell a good story because they don't give you the ups and the downs. They don't make the proper pauses and let the characters breathe a little bit when they're telling a story, even if it's about themselves. They just run through it. I've, I'm guilty of that. I, I consider myself um, an amateur storyteller, but I, it's a skill that I believe is deeply useful in right. how we connect as humans. Right. So we pick up with Isidore and his new companions in the chapters that start off in this episode. And even though androids like lack empathy for their beings and they're treating Isidore kind of bad, they're treating him horribly. And he's a chicken head. He's a chicken head, and so they, they take advantage of that. And what's the question here? So despite being a pretty committed person to mercerism, he seems to be questioning re- reality in some sense, Isidore, right? He's he's having his own sort of crisis because for the sake of companionship, he is willing to break the law and help the androids, even though they treat him like garbage. Been there, bud. Been there. I've simped for people before, men and women alike. No, and we all have a thing at some point in our lives. But what do you what, what do you think about that? In again, the umbrella of our conversation is the need for companionship, human empathy, and we're all going to die and everything's going to fall apart. Anthropy. Yeah. Yeah. When you're... Here's the thing. Isidore was living in this run-down apartment building by himself with no other tenants. So when you have an opportunity, you jump at it. It doesn't matter if it's breaking the law because you've been alone for so long. So why, why would yeah. he follow the law? He, he goes to work. He's treated poorly at work. And then he comes home and he he's alone. So of course, like yeah, it makes it makes sense where he wants connection. And the emotions box, what's it called again? Empathy box. The empathy box just doesn't do it. Like there's there's something that it feeds which is good, but it's not all sufficient. And we see that in the characters, Rick and his wife, you know, toy with the empathy box a little bit and they get something from it, but they don't get everything they need from it. There's these other relationships that these characters have that they there's another hunger, there's another drive, there's another need. I don't know another way to say it. There's another need that they aren't getting from the empathy box, or they would just be on the empathy box all day. And the empathy box is a strange thing, too. You merge with Mercer, and you participate with his climbing the, the mountain, the hill, as he gets stoned to death. Over and over and over again. All right. I mean, whatever. I'm like, I'm, I'm not making a value statement on the religion or that thing itself, but it seems that that wouldn't hold a lot of weight. You know, it wouldn't have a compound value, right? Like after you do that 400 times, does it really help you? No, I completely disagree. I and and I I say that based on ancient history. So Greeks created these tragedies. They went back and rewatched. The same tragedies over and over and over and over and over. Why? Why did they do that? The story's the same. And they're wearing masks. So, okay, maybe you swap out a couple actors. It's because when you watch a tragedy, at the end of it, you get this this big, deep breath of like, well, at least it's not me being Prometheus, pecked out my eyes every day, and my skin is torn off, 
and then it regrows and they do it again the next day. Man, my life might be bad, but it's not that bad. That's a good point. I retract my statement, actually. Yeah, so maybe there maybe there is for some It's not compounding people. Uh, value. It's the same value because you need to understand that your life in context is not as bad as XYZ example. Shoot, there's people, I literally have met people, and sometimes I've been the victim of this, that have kept me around or kept people around because their life is is worse than that person and and I don't think that they understand that they're doing it but you know when you when you have a a visual marker of tragedy in front of you I think it makes you feel powerful if you're a disturbed human being and it makes you feel comforted that like well at least my my life's not as bad as Jonathan's no, I get it. That's a very good point. So a second side quest within a side quest. I bought a book that has Inception. a couple of, and definitely Inception. How apropos your uh, statement there. This is Dick's notes that I bought a book of over the last days. Reality, he says, is hallucination and can be voided through faith, whereupon the absolute time and place appears. In Do Androids Dream, we reveal three levels, a surface level, Below that and below that. So the, the surface level is Mercer, Mercer is real. Below that, Mercer is fake, a hoax, and a fraud. But below that, Mercer is st- still real, and that's the bottom line. So I think what you just said, that's absolutely true for the people in this world. And maybe that's how Dick envisioned it. When Mercerism is revealed to be fake, people still adhere to it. They'll still go to the empathy box, Mercer says. Oh, Jerry says, right? Yes, I agree. You're a poet. So, right. So Mercerism is real even if it isn't for these people because merging with Mercerism does the same thing for these people that the Greek tragedies did for the Greeks, right? And sometimes do for us today. We read Greek tragedies right today. Here's, here's some of Sparks notes. We're going to we're just going to steal some stuff from the Sparks notes for this conversation. Despite going against his core beliefs, Isidore sides with the androids. He seems to realize in his own fashion that an android is no less miraculous a form of life than himself, a human being. And that society has betrayed his belief in mercy by denying him his own humanity and labeling him a special. Isidore expresses a willingness to help his new friends who have likewise been oppressed, but oppress him too. That's my addition to it. So I don't agree with all of what whoever wrote the spark note says, but I agree with the fact that Isidore decides to help the androids because he, he realizes that the people who are not specials, who are real humans, treat him, a human, sometimes even worse than they would treat an android, or the same way. Both aren't shown mercy. That's probably more, more to the point. He's not shown mercy. Neither are the androids shown mercy. So he kind of sides with them because he's been used and abused. So there's that kind of. Did you want to ahead. finish? No, no I'm, I'm finished. Go ahead. There's two things. I want to go back a second because I'm thinking more about this Greek tragedy thing, and I think it actually stems further. And it's not only the comparison that allows us to take context of our lives, but it's also something that you and I discussed a while ago, where it's like, well, why do I keep rewatching the same shows? Why do I keep rewatching the same TV and and books and whatever? And then I can't remember which psychological paper or whatever I read, but there's less emotional weight that goes into going back to something familiar. Oh, yeah. And so that's part of it. And then also, like, it's um, Stockholm Syndrome. Not one-to-one comparison, but, like, lemon to lime. lime. Sure, yeah. Lemon lemon to lime. Where it's like they're in the Citrus family, where you would go back to Mercer, even if it's fake, because it gives you something to believe in. 
and Young talks about this and Viktor Frankl talk about this where you have to create meaning in your life. And I think Isidore does this well where he gets this opportunity to grow at work, I guess I'll call it, where he's 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 stuttering a lot, but then he gets the opportunity to explain something. That's a moment of growth for him, I, I see in his character. And then he gets to go back home and starts using that newfound confidence to interact with the androids. He then uses that same thing to go, it doesn't have to be this way, and I get to... It's like a big moment for him. I, I get to make decisions, and I don't have to just be a chicken head. I think that's right. And... Well, I don't know if I want to say and and add anything. I think that's I think that wraps it up pretty nicely. My new endeavor with this podcast is to simply take all of your questions and nip them all in the bud as quickly as possible. It's like Tetris. It's like verbal Tetris, right? To make well, it so that you you're only done at once, so uh, <laughs> you got a long to way make to go. you speak to make you speechless, and then the goal is to try to complete the podcast for, forever. So it ends with me being a chicken head and just like drooling on the side <laughs> of the, on this side, oh, side of the boy. microphone. No, that's good. I think that that wraps it up nicely because what he does, Isidore, is he provides them what people haven't even provided him. And yeah. He, he really wants the company. Even Pris tre- treats him like garbage. And even, I forget the woman's name, but even Rose the woman too. Rose, Rose? too. Well, that's yeah. good enough. Rose, too, tries to defend him, but not really. She only defends him as far as it helps her keep him compliant. Or keep 100%. him happy. 100%. Yeah. All right, very good. So in the next chapters, 15 through 17, we have Deckard now confronting his empathy. So Isidore is confronting his empathy towards androids, which makes him question his mercerism, and then everything we just talked about is the fallout of that. And Deckard has uh, to confront his empathy too, as it's growing for androids. He buys a goat. A real goat spends an exorbitant amount of money. Nubian goat. A Nubian goat. He merges with Mercer, right? Something happens when he talks to Mercer. He become. He says he that he becomes Mercer. Right. Like, and I think that's part of the the merging is where you all come together and share in good, bad, and indifferent. That's the part of the the whole empathy thing. So he's now conflicted with his job and re- is reluctant to continue killing. Uh, Killing androids. Sounds like Dalinar. Yeah, actually. Talk about that a little bit. So, if you didn't hear our our Way of Kings podcast, Dalinar is a famous general who is given this nickname, the Blackthorn. His character is built off of the seed of the Mongols, a constant raiding group that ends up conquering a nation and then has to run the city-state, or run, run the nation, and goes... Man, war was so much simpler than this. And so he has aged a while, and he now is still fighting these folks called the Parshendi. And while he goes out to fight, he has these moments of conflict with himself where he goes, why are we killing these folks? We don't know anything about their culture. We don't know anything about them. And then he's, starting, he's also starting to realize that maybe he's killing not just men, but women and or children who are out to battle because they don't understand the culture enough. And so he's slowly giving up warfare and death that his entire identity has been built on as a as a warlord in this book and he has to come to grips with himself to go i think i'm missing something here because i'm starting to react and respond poorly and negatively when i kill these beings and deckard is wrestling with something similar where he's 
killing these androids. And with Rose number one, he's kind of running through the details of that. And he's coming to terms with like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And it's interesting. He had a similar, very similar reaction and methodology, not methodology. He has the same reaction and takes the same steps. Let's put it that way, as Isidore does. So he calls Rose to get her help to retire the Andes that he doesn't want to retire because he now has empathy for them. He sleeps with Rose knowing what her ulterior motive is, is to get him to stop killing Andes. Then she messes with his head. He wants to kill her, but because he now has made love to her, he some feels something for her, so he doesn't kill her. She makes fun of him for that, and then she kills his goat, and he kind of lets that go. That's later on in the in the book. But then after he lets her go, he goes and, with the help of Mercer, which might be too much of a side quest unless you want to go there, with the help of Mercer, destroys the other three Andes. And that's it. And then he goes on his little uh, little trip to Oregon. But it, it's it's the same thing. He goes through the same process Isidore does, at least in my, my view of things, where he knows Rose's true intentions. He sleeps with her. And then instead of retiring her like she, he should have, according to the law, that is, he lets her go. And he still has a hard time killing Andes, but then he does it anyway. So there's, there's this um, tension within uh, Deckard, right? And that, that tension actually helps him grow as a character, which I think that's good. Uh, good writing on, on Dick's part. But maybe there's enough differences for somebody, if they pick this apart, there'll be enough differences so they'll be, say, no, Slava, you're completely wrong. But to me, it seems they, they both go through it the same, for different reasons maybe, but this is the same process. You missed a real good opportunity earlier with a joke where you could have said that she got his goat. <laughs> and she I just want to point, goat. I just want to rub your nose in the fact that you missed a really easy well, joke. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. And we can use that joke. I'll just, <laughs> you should have saved that for, for when we talk about Rose getting, literally his getting his goat. Yeah, yeah. And then getting his goat. Uh, That's good. Anyway, so so on the the empathy thing, so empathy is part of being human, right? That's that's a fair that's a fair statement. I remember a story of a black man who was really adamant about trying to change his community because it was full of skinheads, people who were like Nazi enthusiasts who lo- you know hate black people, hate Jews, blah blah blah. They're just bigots. And so what he did is he made a persona online that was perceivably a, a, a white man who also was a skinhead, blah, blah, blah. And he, he ended up befriending these guys. And it didn't work with all of them, but but it did work with some of them. And then when they finally met him, they went, wait, but you're, but you're black. You're this thing that I hate. And he actually invited them on this journey of empathy where he said, hey, I don't know what they're teaching you over there, but I know that it's wrong. And I know that you and I can both be human and you and I can be friends even. And he, he ended up, like, inviting them on this journey and helped them see the world in a different light. So I, I do think that part of what it is to be human is to confront beliefs in ourselves and others that helps us restore the connection that humanity is meant to have with one another, regardless of differences. Because at the end of the day, if you're breathing, we have things in common. And, and, and people don't get that. And I was an introvert for a hot minute during some times of depression and stuff in my life. And 
I chat with people who are introverts and I'm like, well, I can't talk to that person because I don't know them. And I go, you have so much in common with them. You have no idea. And you don't know because you're not willing to ask. And that doesn't mean you need to befriend everybody because some people are simply trash. Like they're willing to live at the dregs of society because that's all they're interested in. And you know what? If that works for them, that, that works for them. But the I, I try and encourage people. I go, look, you won't know until you have a conversation with them. You won't know until you have a cup of coffee. You won't know until you ask, oh, hey, you love dogs too? And then they go, yeah, I've got two of them. I, da, da, da. And you're like, oh, I've got two dogs. And you go, oh, that wasn't so hard. You created some connection there. I don't really grasp how Dick can believe that we're in a simulation. Same with Musk. I just don't understand it because there's too much phenomenology, evidence, evidence for phenomenology that something is here that's more real than a simulation. Because if we were in a simulation, I would make things go my way all the time, all the time. I would I would have no struggles, and then maybe if I got bored, I would make some struggles. But like to start, I simply would not give myself any struggles. Because if you know you're in a simulation, you have you have broken the matrix, so to speak. You have you have now you're now Neo. We're gonna you know, that's it. Like if you if you know for sure, well, chaos not? doesn't exist in in a, in a simulation. Was that chaos doesn't exist in a simulation? It's controlled random. Like yeah. it's not actual chaos, which is which life life has real chaos. And I think that that's a strong counterpoint to saying that we live in a simulation because you don't get to control the weather. You don't get to control the fact that a hurricane blew through and destroyed hundreds of families' homes and lives. You don't get to control that. And it's too simple to say, well, we're in a simulation. There's chaos that exists that you don't get to control or manipulate or influence at all. You're not in a simulation. You're just not. It's simple. Like I Look, I love a simple answer. I love believing that... Things can be fully understood, but they can't because you can't comprehend all chaos. I think maybe we can get into this because there's a lot to, to unpack there. But moving on to the next two chapters, 18 and 19, we're back to J.R. Isidore's point of view. And here's the spark note says, In parallel to Deckard's painful awakening about his feelings towards androids, J.R. Isidore confronts a new contrasting point of view about his new friends, Pris, Roy, and... Ermgard, where he once found solace and solidarity with the androids, Isidore's point of view changes, and he is horrified by their anti-empathetic behavior when Pris tortures a living spider. On top of that, Buster Friendly, once a reassuring connection to the outside world for Isidore, is debunking Isidore's beloved mercerism on TV. So all this is, is going on, right? And here's mercerism is revealed to be fake, the guy who plays Mercer, he still argues that life needs saving. And Isidore's faith has been shattered, but he's told to continue as all life must, even in the face of certain annihilation, because new creation will continually to emerge from what we, from Mercer's tomb world, which is the cycles of life and death, the Mercerism. So... That's interesting to me. And I'm reading this for the first time. I didn't prepare this for the episode. So I'm reading these notes as as I'm scrolling through them. I think that's very interesting. And that, that kind of goes back to what I said in the previous little bit and you said in the bid before that. That's kind of cool. Despite the fact that... And hey, Buster is an android. That's, that's a funny thing. The, the guy who reveals mercerism is fake is actually an android. We find that out later in the book. Dun-da-da. Da-da. Spoiler. I think Isidore 
he's kind of broken, right? Because he wanted so bad for this companionship that he actually went against some of his core beliefs to have these companions, even when they were treating him bad. But as they like clip legs off a spider and watch it watch it suffer, he's broken. He he kills a spider to put it out of its misery. They should go hang out with Nambalat. Do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Balat is an android. It's here we go. I knew it. Uh, that comes out in the secret project. <laughs> Some of you are listening to this going, what the hell is going on? A lot of our conversations, and then you can get back to your point, will be built off of previous conversations. So if you don't get the joke, just keep trucking. That's what yep. we do. Yep. So it's interesting to me to see the parallel between Deckard and Isidore. And I'm glad I'm not the only one because for what it's worth, Spark Notes, the people who put it together, they, they, they seem to agree with me or vice versa. Although I didn't read the notes before I said what I said. Good authors, good storytellers. I was just reading, I think her name is Lisa Cron. Uh, I read this book earlier this year about how to, how to tell better stories. And so you do these drafts. You, how am I going to summarize this? Because it's a reasonably thick book. Basically, you figure out what your themes are. You figure out where you want your characters to grow, and then you go back and do revisions to make sure that each of the moments that that character's experience bring them closer to or purposely further away from that goal of growth, and then you go and find other symbolic things to put in there. If it's like, oh, they don't believe in authority, and then maybe the first scene is them in walking out into the rain without an umbrella because authority is uh, an umbrella in the hierarchical sense of they should be there to offer protection and, and comfort and things. And then the end scene, the movie ends, and, and um, the person is now walking in the rain with an umbrella and someone by their side because they've decided to embrace authority and also take community along for the ride, whatever it is, right? But you have these moments where the character goes through trials or even just passing conversations with friends that are supposed to build into the story. Hard stop. And every side character should build into, if not the main theme, sub-themes that you're writing. So the fact that Dick did this well, and this is why we enjoy good stories, or sorry, this is why we classify things as good stories and then enjoy them, is because we see these parallels, even if we don't see them and we don't spend time analyzing them, like they're still there. And so something calls out to us that goes, Rick and Isidore are going through similar things. And that's why I feel a central theme through the book. Yeah, absolutely. When all this is going on, like the torture and the spider, and Dick is about, no, not Dick, Rick Deckard is about to come and kill the androids. Isidore goes to the empathy box, and he's told by the actor, Al Jerry, that, hey, life has to continue um, no matter what. And when Dick is talking to Mercer, who he believes is Mercer, when he joins with him and then I think he sees Mercer, has a hallucination of Mercer in the hallway of this apartment building, Mercer assures him that the murders of the androids are necessary, right? And that he must play the role of the killer. This is just the world, like here's, again, this is from the Spark Notes, so we're giving proper citation. The real world, too, must possess both martyr-like figures and killers in, in balance. Even though, and then as he starts to kill him, the baddies put up a fight, but ultimately show passivity and detachment, which are characteristic of androids in this novel, right? And here, unlike his previous kills, which we get a glimpse of, Decker kills them in unglorious fashion. 
proving to Mercer that he can fulfill his duty as a killer. But Deckard is forever changed. He no longer dreams of wanting a real animal. He no longer dreams about being a bounty uh, hunter. And Deckard now fully empathizes with the android, and his days as a bounty hunter are over. And so Rachel Rosen's tactic, Sparknote says, of seduction to induce empathy has ultimately been successful. What I think is interesting here is everybody has a purpose, right? Everybody has a role to play. It might be difficult for some to go, oh, that's what you pulled out of a guy killing androids, or, or that's, but that's the character arc there, right? That's the, the, the arc of the story, and, and you know, Decker coming to terms with his own humanity and realizing that the role he's been playing, maybe he's been doing all the things he's doing for the wrong reasons. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? So not everyone believes they have a role to play, which is a role in and of itself, but I would agree that everyone does have a role to play. I would also assert that not everyone believes they have a role to play, which is why they live in negative cycles and degeneracy of their own flavoring. Uh, I would also say that Deckard shows us, and this is something I attest to as well, that you get to create the life you want. You get to create the life that you want. Absolutely. And and most people need that reminding. I need that reminding. Because he ultimately changes. You're absolutely right. He, He says, okay, this... I have learned, like, so the arc is there. I have learned these lessons. I have mm-hmm. processed these things. I don't want this for my life anymore. This is not what I should be going for. This is at all, this is counterintuitive to my growth as a human or growth as a whatever. Insert anything here. Yeah. And and it should be uh, strengthening and encouragement to gain courage to read books like this and go, you know, if he can change his life, I can change my life. It should spur you on to more. Carl Jung said that everyone's living an archetype story, and your first question should be, which archetype story am I living? And the second should be, do I want to live that story? Yeah. Well, and funny you this, mentioned Jung. Oh, go for it. No, sorry. Just real quick, and then I'll, I want you to finish because I think you have really good points. Um, funny you should mention Jung. From the notes I read and a couple of lectures that I've, I've sent you, the, I mean, I watched them in their entirety a long time ago, but Jung did influence a lot of what, Dick wrote. Even he, I think, references Jung in a couple of uh, notes, but I haven't gone that far in that book yet. But I do remember from a documentary that one of the books, I think his very first book, was very Jungian or or heavily influenced by Jung and how Jung views reality. And that's what Dick's stories are a lot about, what it means to be human and reality. What What is reality? So to your your connection with Jung is very good because that's where Dick's getting some of his stuff is from Jung. Well, that's interesting to me because I didn't know that, first off. Secondly, I I relate a lot of things back to Jung because I believe that Jung was one of the very few people in existence who stood at the precipice of madness and mastery, madness and genius. And I think I've mentioned this before, but if you read his red books, he is meeting his own subconscious he is speaking with different spirits he's he's it's just he the man's wild and that parallels a lot of what dick went through in his life he said that he had encounters with spirits he said he's encounters with deities or entities from beyond the veil and they have told him a lot of the stuff that went into his book that's what his biographer said there's people who were very close and, and people who were adjacent to Dick 
who knew about this during his life and have, when they were interviewed for this documentary, repeated those things. So that's an interesting connection, too. I would be curious to see if someone could spend the time doing this. And I don't have the time for this. And I don't know if you ever have this, where you think, man, I really wish someone would put out a book or a study about blank, whatever it is, where you just go, someone go consolidate all the information and like, bring it back to me. And like, I want to read about it. Following folks who believe that they've been met by spirits and looking for the patterns of the things that they were told to get a bigger narrative of the movements that the spirit realm is trying to make on the gray to dark side. And if you can find them, the positive side as well. I believe that they're out there. I think that there's just a little more vetting that people give to the dark side than the, the, the light side. But that would be something that I'd be curious about because this book is about androids and we are moving toward AI. And, and you talk about this bonus episode. And I mean, it could be a podcast in and of itself, man. Like we we can do the bonus episode, but it could be no, a we full. Can, we can do a full episode, just call it a bonus episode. But yeah, we should do, I think we should do it because the philosophy of the book, Jungian Connections, AI for today, that would be a good way to test out the other project we were talking about, if you remember. We talk about so many projects. I think I know what you're talking about. But anyway, I threw Slava this article earlier this week, and I won't dive into it, but somebody took ChatGPT and told it to destroy all humans, and then it tried to. So, you know, we don't know what we're diving into here in releasing AI. And then I think I mentioned this in the last episode, too, and and we can wind down here uh, unless you have more questions, is... There needs to be some very deep thought and ethical understanding of what we're going to classify as the difference between organic beings and inorganic beings or beings that we've created and the rights that both of them have. And I say that because I'm, you put me on the record, it's 2023, April 15th, five years from now, someone's going to come up with the Fakakta idea that robots need rights. Yep. And I hold the opinion that if you have turned a robot on, if you turned your computer on, you can turn it off. It doesn't need rights. It is not a soul. It has intelligence. I can, I'll go as far as the, to say that. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. Anyway, do you have any more questions before we... No, I don't think so. I think I think we're good. I think we're good. And we'll, we'll save that rabbit hole for... Um, maybe we'll call the episode Dick's Rabbit Hole. No, I'm kidding. So moving on to the last two chapters. We have the close of the story. Deckard wanders. Well, he doesn't really wander. He goes there with a purpose to find relief from, I guess, what he just seen and done. And he goes north of the city, like 700 miles, which takes him 45 minutes, which is an interesting fact about the technology of this of this world. But he goes there and recreates, he reenacts Mercer's endless uh, climb. And something that he was never able to achieve in the empathy box he actually gets hit by the rock and experiences a merger, right, with with Mercer. So he finally, this is the story arc. This is where he finally, you know, comes into his own as the new man, Rig Deckard, no longer a bounty hunter. So he's fused with, he's fused with uh, Mercer. He finally accepts his new life. He's no longer going to be destroying life, whether it's artificial or real or anything. And he's only destroyed artificial life. And he remains resolute, right? And despite being in this hellhole, this hellscape, this world that's fallen apart, mm-hmm. he remains resolute. He, just like Isidore in his own way, he decides, all right, this is the new way of doing things. I have to move on with my role, I'm doing air quotes, in this world. And then he says, 
or he, he comes to the conclusion, and this is now me referring back to Sparknotes, that the difference between authenticity and artificiality is finally rendered meaningless for Deckard when he discovers what appears to be a living toad in the wasteland. And he grabs this living toad, he brings it back, and he's like, wow, this is, this, is my, this is the crescendo of my story. I finally found a living thing, and it's free. I don't have to kill anybody for it. He brings it back, and his wife is happy, and they're happy. And, you know, I think there was almost like this uh, rekindling of their former relationship. And it's revealed that the toad is fake. And this is a bit nihilistic, I guess, or maybe, maybe that's too strong of a word. I take that back. It's not nihilistic. So they discover, uh, they discover that the toad is fake, and they become resolute with their situation. That's not, that's not really nihilistic. Or, so they become resolute with what they have, and they're like, okay, well, this is what we have. We have a fake toad, and we're going to take care of it. And Deckard's like, eh, it's all right that it's fake. I'm going to go sleep because I've been awake for 48 hours or whatever it was. Yeah. And the wife's like, okay, I'm going to and well, she doesn't tell this to Rick, but she calls the the pet store and gets supplies for her fake toad. Uh, that said, they've they both grown. Although Dick is Dick, Rick is the 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 main POV here. He's just he's come to the conclusion that well, I don't know what the conclusion is, but he he has he this is where his story ends. He's it's acceptance. Um, it's acceptance of his there. Thank you. His acceptance of his. We'll go. We'll stick with this. His role in in this story in this in his life. Yeah, that's true. There's no real commentary that I can give on the ending of the book here that adds anything to to what you've said. So yeah, yeah. I'm I'm trying to look at some of the some of the little highlights here from the the Sparknotes people, just to pull something for us to talk about. But maybe that's it. No, I think that's it. I think that's it because we don't, we don't want to you know get up our own asses too far up on our asses, and we also don't want to belabor it i think we've uh done a pretty good job i wish we had done this for the first episode where we took chunks and discussed them but it works because we talked in generalities in the first episode it got more more specific in the second it'll work and i think we can flesh everything out in that um that third episode so there you go good people that was do android drink i need i need some of that cocaine you have so that's it. We are done with Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Goodbye, good Goodbye, people. good people. Goodbye, good people. Goodbye. Goodbye, good people. Goodbye, good people. You sound like Marilyn Manson a little bit. They call me the Manson. Yeah. Remember, the what was his song? Charles Manson. Ooh. Ooh. He sang songs, too. Woof. They're weird. I'm not surprised. (laughs) I'm not surprised. Yeah. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. For a second there, when you were, you sounded a little, to me, you sounded a little bit like Mer... (laughs) Ah, here we go. Here's that acid trip. Marilyn Manson. This song, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'll just end it here. This is it. Goodbye, good people. There we go. Now this is. Are you starting a new trend where you're just gonna interrupt our outro? Because I can neither confirm. Due to our outro, what Decker did to Roy Batty. This is digressing. <laughs> is it? It's digressing.